0: Friends, it's great to, uh, excuse me, it's great to see you this morning. Thank you for being flexible. You know, these Sundays are always hard when a staff, we're trying to look at the weather and navigate it and and understand uh, and really sort of balance the priority of gathering together as God's people with the desire to keep everyone here safe. And so thank you for starting an hour or so earlier and just think on the bright side, right? We should be out by noon. Maybe. Well, this past month, Oprah Winfrey's portrait was unveiled to much fanfare at the Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. And it's really a remarkable honor to uh, be placed alongside figures such as America's founding fathers. But Oprah wasn't born into fame and fortune, she was actually born into a poor rural home in Baptist Mississippi and she was actually named anyone know what her her birth name was it was Orpah it was Orpah after the daughter-in-law of Naomi from Ruth chapter one but an early misspelling and some confusion led people to say Oprah and well that name stuck and yet from those humble beginnings she rose to become the wealthiest woman in the entertainment industry She ran a syndicated talk show for over a quarter of a century. It gathered a cult-like following of over 15 million daily viewers. And while she wasn't ordained as a minister of any kind, she wasn't a religious professional per se. She became really a symbol and catalyst for a new kind of American religion. One commentator noted that to attend the Oprah show was attending something like a worship service. She writes, you go to this house and worship and sit down for an inspiring hour that will engage you and give you a lift. I thought they were talking about our services at UBC. And an hour-long show five days a week adds up to a lot more pulpit time per week than the average pastor enjoys. And Oprah, let's be honest commands a lot bigger congregation. And if you know her show, which of course went off the air some years ago, but she would often talk about God, but she did so really in vague and general ways. Her discussions and beliefs and convictions entailed no particular theological commitments. It was about positivity. It was about inclusivity. It was about empathy and really maintaining sort of fuzzy Boundaries. While Oprah's clothes wore labels, her faith does not. It was all about for Oprah belief in belief. Whether it was belief in science or belief in self or belief in some vague notion about God, be it Christian or Jewish or uh, Muslim or Hindu. Right, that at the end of the day didn't much matter to her. It just mattered that you believed something. And she defined a new kind of spirituality for our age. But here's my question that I want us to be thinking about this morning. Does it believe, rather does it believe, does it matter what you believe? Does it matter what you believe? Or does it, as Oprah would say, simply matter that you believe? Well, friends, it's questions like that that bring us this morning to the start of a new sermon series in the Gospel of John. So goodbye, 2 Samuel, sadly, hello, Gospel, this morning. And the Gospel of uh, John, it's been said, and this is often attributed to Augustine, wrote that John's Gospel is deep enough for an elephant to swim in, and yet shallow enough for a child not to drown. And if you're familiar with John's gospel, that quote would ring true, that observation, because John contains some of the richest and deepest theological exposition in all the gospels. Right? Jesus is the bread of life, the water of life, the light of the world. We think of all the many I am statements, his high priestly prayer. All right, 2,000 years later, theologians continue to plumb the depths of john's gospel and yet it is at the same time simple enough for a child to understand for god so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life and right there we're beginning to see in a word this gospel of john is about belief it's about belief now my grade school teacher mrs carlisle taught me that any good argument has what? It has a thesis statement. It has a point it's trying to make. And it seems the gospel writer John also had missed Carlisle as an instructor. Because toward the end, we read this in John 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So notice that purpose statement. John gives it to us, kind of like Cole did toward the end of the sermon. Last week, that's how John does it. He lays it out, but he he doesn't finally give us the concise statement till till the end. And notice again the purpose. These things, i.e. what I've written in my gospel, are written so that, there's your purpose, so that you may believe. But again, believe what? Just belief and Belief. No, believe what? That content, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You know, it's interesting, if you compare the thesis statement with the thesis statement in his shorter letter, 1 John, in that letter, the thesis statement also comes at the end and he writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So you read that and it's clear 1 John is written to Christians to encourage them and the knowledge that they possess in Christ eternal life. And yet John, well John it seems is written to more skeptics, those who may, would not have believed that Jesus was the Christ. They would have been unbelievers as we would say. John in that sense is an evangelistic book. So who is the Christ, the Son of God? That's not a question that a Christian would be asking, but that is a question that a Jewish individual may be asking who has seen or heard something about Jesus. Or maybe people who are in contact with early Christians would be wondering, who is this Jesus Christians keep talking about? And thus John writes his gospel. And notice John wants them to believe not just anything. Again, belief and belief, something specific. So if you haven't already turned there, let me invite you to turn to John chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible, you can find John 1 on page 886 of those red Bibles and in the, in the seat backs before you, page 886. And let's go ahead and read John 1, the prologue, John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All three... <laughs> But he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him. All right, so right here we're introduced to many of the themes uh, in the gospel. So light and life and world and darkness and witness and glory and truth are all themes that are going to be picked up repeatedly throughout the gospel. And so like a a movie trailer, he's giving us a sneak peek. He's giving us a kind of preview and really setting us up for all that's about to unfold in the gospel. And, And in a carefully crafted prologue like this, structure is often key. And can you guess what we might have in John 1, 1 to 18? A chiasm. I heard a young voice say that, I think, somewhere over there. That's exactly right. We have a chiasm. Now try to contain your excitement. I know it's the start of the year. Chiasms, they get you going. I get it. Now, unlike our beloved uh, preacher, Dr. Hamilton, I'm not going to sort of point to the rafters, which don't really exist here anyway, and try to move in. Chiasm's are kind of hard to verbally explain. They're a little easier to see. So imagine, look at that, voila. We have, I think, the first slide I've ever used in a sermon in my life. (laughs) Maybe the last, we'll find out. I'm not sure you can see it. If you can't see it real well, just take a picture of it with your phone and then blow it up. That might work. At any rate, um, I just want us to notice here how the opening and closing uh, sections function as kind of bookends. So if we if we work in here, you notice in one one to two, we see the word and his relationship with God. And then if we look at the bottom, what are we seeing again? We're, we're hearing about the word who's now described as the Son, and we're seeing his relationship to God. So those are sort of that's the outer bracket, right? And then we sort of move in, and what do we get? One, three to five, that he made all things, and he brings light into darkness. And then in one sixteen to seventeen, the corresponding passage. We see that from his fullness, we receive the light of saving grace. And then in 1, 6 to 8, John came to what? To bear witness. And in John one fifteen, what do we see? The corresponding pattern is John is bearing witness. And then as we keep moving in, true light comes into the world and yet is rejected. And then in one fourteen, 14, the word becomes flesh and we have seen his glory. And that all leads to sort of the center section where everything turns. All who believe in this Jesus become children of God, right? Not by ethnicity or family, but by the Father. So we're going to go ahead and leave that slide up for, for a few minutes because one of the key principles of interpretation when you come to your Bible is that structure often reveals emphasis. The structure of a passage reveals emphasis. So if we move sort of from the outside and move in in this chiasm I think we can summarize the argument of John 1 1-18 like this God became man so that the children of men might believe and become children of God let me say that again I think the summary statement to John 1-18 is that God became man so that the children of men might believe And become children of God. And friends, for our points, what we're just going to do is I'm just going to trace that chiasm. I'm just going to start on the outside and I'm going to work my way in. So if you can count, yeah, that's right, five points. Okay, five truths. We'll see how this goes. Five truths here that we learn about Jesus that John is setting before us as he prepares us for the rest of his gospel. First truth, I want us to see Jesus is more than a man. First, he is more than a man. So we're looking here at verses 1 and 2, and then the corresponding final verse, verse 18. And friends, that's recognize what many believe about Jesus. He is just another human being. Yeah, maybe he's remarkable in a few ways, but at the end of the day, he's no different from you, and he's no different from me. But notice how John opens. First three words. In the beginning. John goes back to the beginning because that's, friends, that's what great stories do, right? They, they go back to where it all began. Only this story, notice it doesn't go back to the very beginning of Jesus' career. It doesn't go like to his first sermon, which is basically how uh, Mark just about opens up. Nor does it go back to sort of the birth pictures with, uh, with a, an exhausted Mary and an anxious Joseph. It doesn't go back to that or some of the events surrounding his birth, like Luke's gospel does. Nor does it go back to actually an extended genealogy of of Jesus' own parents and so forth, like Matthew's gospel does. No, those words in the beginning are exactly how Genesis 1-1 opens, and that's not an accident. It's meant to call that to mind. So we're going back, not just a little back, we're going way back. Back to before there were stars and before there were galaxies, before there were black holes. Back before there was anything. And what do we learn? Verse 1, the Word was what? With God. So the Word, notice, is distinct from God and yet with God. In the sense that the Word is in fellowship with God. It's the same image picked up in verse 18. When we read that he's at the Father's side... If you've got an ESV, you probably have a footnote that says something like, or in the Father's bosom, right, which is, some of us will chuckle at that. But it's conveying sort of relationship, intimacy, a kind of special favor Jesus has with the Father. But not only was the word with God, the word what? Was God. So distinct from God, and yet at the same time, fully God. Notice John opens with the astounding claim that not only is Jesus the Messiah, but he is the very Son of God and, in fact, God Himself. So the Trinity is already in the opening verses being put out before us. Now, of course, we're not yet to the Holy Spirit, right? That's going to come, but He's already laying the groundwork for all of that. So Jesus was in the beginning with God. In other words, He's eternal. He's not temporal. Jesus exists outside of creation. There was a 4th century heretic, a guy named Arius. And it was because of his teaching that the, we have things like the Nicene Creed in 325 and 381. And he denied a whole, bit, uh, a whole bunch actually about Jesus. And one of his famous sayings, the famous sayings of Arius was this. There once was when he, Jesus, was not. That's what he would say. There once was, as in once was a time, when he, Jesus, was not. That's what Arius taught. It's why we had to formulate things like the Nicene Creed as a Christian church. And yet, John says, there never was when he was not. That's what John's saying. It's what Jesus actually himself declared in John 17:5 when he says, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the worlds existed. See, Jesus understands his relation with the Father goes back before the very beginning of time. But not only is Jesus the preexistent, eternal word with God and who is God, but as the word, notice, he's the perfect revelation of God. That's why John uses this image of the word For Jesus, while no one has ever seen God, right, we're reminded of that in verse 18, while no one has ever seen God, the only God, i.e. Jesus, has made him known. He has revealed him. So that word for made known is where we get our English word exegesis or to exegete a passage. So we could say Jesus is the exegesis of God. Now, if we want to know something about uh, what someone is like, if we want to know what they'll turn into, what they'll become, right? If we want to understand resemblance, often we'll say, oh, look at them, look at their parents. And we'll often see those resemblances. But it's never perfect, right? Even identical twins are never truly identical. But John says if you want to know what God is like, you don't have to wonder, you don't have to grasp in the dark. You can look to Jesus, and He is the perfect revelation of God. It's why none of us here can afford to ignore the claims. Of jesus it's why we have to evaluate them it's why we have to treat him differently than any other because i'm guessing there's no one here that claims not only to be god but to be eternal outside of creation and yet that's exactly what jesus claimed about himself friends it's finally why as christians we worship this jesus we don't worship mary she's not god she's not the eternal pre-existent one Nor do we worship saints, we don't worship stars, we don't worship Mother Earth. They are not God, they are not the image of the invisible God, as Eliza read earlier from Colossians 1, killer reading. That can only be said of Jesus. Jesus is more than a man we're seeing right at the get-go. He is the very revelation of God. Second thing I want us to see. Jesus is more than a religious teacher. He is, secondly, more than a religious teacher. So if you got that up, this is verses 3 to 5, and then verses 16 and 17, right? We're working our way in this chiasm. Now, if you ask most people on the street who Jesus is, I think that's the answer you're going to get. He's a religious teacher. That's what I was taught, religious teacher. He's the guy, sort of the religious guru who amazed the crowds, kind of confounded his critics. He was immensely popular, maybe a bit peculiar in some ways, right? But compelling. And that's what we think of Jesus. And, you know, there's a sense in which some of that's true. But he's so much more than that. Notice what John says in verse 3. All things were made through him. So he's not just some religious teacher. John is saying he's the creator he wasn't just with God in the beginning. He was the one in the beginning creating everything we read about in Genesis 1. And when he says all things, it's as if he's leading us, John is, and saying, hey, let me lead you to the zoo. Right? Walk in with me, exhibit one giraffe. Yeah, you know what? Jesus made that. And gorilla. Yeah, he made that. Alligator. Yep, made that one too. Oh, it's tired of the zoo. Let's go to the aquarium. Whales and walruses. Yep, he made that. Okay, let's look up. Birds, skies, stars, heavens, he made all of it. That's what John's communicating. And friends, you may have had some amazing teachers in your life. You know, my college advisor was Ben Bernanke, former chair of the Federal Reserve, and he was a really impressive guy, pretty humbling. But friend, there is no teacher that you have had or that I have ever had that can point his finger in any direction and say, I made that. We don't have any teachers like that. None of us do. And those creation images from Genesis 1 continue. Because we read, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Life and light. Again, two dominant themes we're going to see throughout the Gospel of John. Now, I think in context, verse 4 is speaking first of creation, right? Jesus is the one who created physical life and light. But throughout John, light and life are going to be increasingly used spiritually. They're going to be increasingly used as sort of a metaphor of salvation, Jesus is the one John is already cluing us in. If you've read through the book and you go back and read it, you'd see it. He's cluing us in that Jesus is the one who brings life to the spiritually dead, and he brings light to the spiritually darkened. For here's the thing, darkness and light, it's not sort of like the Star Wars where there are equal powers dueling it out. Uh, not at all. Darkness and light in the Gospels, and honestly in reality, they're not equal forces right so imagine you've been ever in a situation where the power goes out in your neighborhood it's night power goes out and everything is thrown into utter blackness like suffocating darkness you can't even see the hand in front of you there's just not a light anywhere to be seen or had and yet all it takes is the single light of a little match and a little wick and an entire room can be illuminated Or go out to the mountains, right, what my wife and I love to do. Go out in the mountains, sit up there, no moon, out in the sky, look up to the stars, and it's astounding. It can be pitch black, and yet, a single star, billions of light years away, can still pierce through the darkness and reach our naked eye. That's how powerful light is. And so, too, Jesus Despite the fact that people love the darkness, as we're going to see, because their deeds are evil, John 3, the darkness can't overcome the light, verse 5. Jesus's light cannot be extinguished. No, he penetrates the darkness and deadness of our own hearts, and he is the one who brings life and light to men. And how does he do that? Well, look down to the other side of the the bracket right of the chiasm for uh, verse 16 and 17 we read for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace for the law was given through Moses grace and truth came through Jesus Christ now if you've got an ESV I actually think the footnote in your ESV there is the the more accurate reading of verse 16 or if you've got an NIV It reads, out of his fullness, we have all received, not grace upon grace, not like grace in addition to grace, but grace in place of, grace in place of grace already given. And if that's the reading, what's John's point? Well, verse 17 explains verse 16. So the law, referring there to the Mosaic law, was Gracious, it was gracious in that it displayed God's character. It pointed to God as holy and revealed his will for his people, right? But Judaism had done what? They turned the law into an end in and of itself. It was no longer relational, how we know God. It became transactional, how we earn his favor. But the law was never designed as an end in and of itself. It was always meant to what? To point us. ...to Christ, who is the embodiment of grace and truth. So the law couldn't save. All the law could do is condemn. The grace of the law was that it pointed us to the grace of Jesus Christ. And in that sense, the grace of the gospel... ...is what's in place of the grace that had come earlier through the law. And John says, now that the grace of the law has pointed people to Christ... How much more grace have we received now that Jesus has come? For Christ's fullness and in his fullness, the law was fulfilled so that we could experience the light of saving grace. In other words, he's saying Jesus is so much more than a religious teacher, he's saying he's our creator and he's our savior. Which brings us to a third truth we learn about Jesus. Third, Jesus is more than a prophet. Thirdly, Jesus is more than a prophet. So this is looking at verses 6 to 8, and then looking at verse 15 as we keep moving in. What do I mean more than a prophet? Well, prophets in the Bible were inspired teachers who often made claims about the future. They were often able to foretell future events. And John the Baptist himself was a prophet. He was indeed the last of the great Old Testament prophets. And he had many followers, and some of them even looked to him and assumed or thought or believed that he was the Messiah. So what does John have to say about John the Baptist? And just an interesting side note, John the Baptist is never called the Baptist in John's gospel. Now, in other gospels, Well, I should say in John, when two people have the same name, he's always clarifying which Judas he's talking about. And here he never clarifies. He says John, he always means John the Baptist. Why is that? It's because the only other John that could become a source of confusion is the one who's actually written the book. And everyone knows he's written the book. So John is the author. So he doesn't have to explain who John the Baptist is. Everyone knows when he says John, he means John the Baptist. All right. At any rate, what does he say about John the Baptist? Verse 7. He came as a witness to bear witness. That's courtroom language. John the Baptist was sent by God for a specific purpose, to take the witness stand and to testify publicly about Jesus. Verse 8 is clear. He is not the light. John the Baptist isn't. He came only to bear witness about the light. And so even though John the Baptist was a little older than Jesus, and even though his public ministry began well before Jesus, right, that should have given John the Baptist priority over Jesus. And yet, verse 15, John says, he outranks me because he was before me. Even John the Baptist understood that Jesus eternally existed. He is the preeminent one. Everyone else takes a back seat including a prominent guy even like John. So in effect, our gospel writer is saying that John the Baptist stood in a long line of Old Testament prophets pointing people back to God. Only when John the Baptist takes the stand, he doesn't point people back to the written word. He doesn't say, hey, go study Deuteronomy again. He points them not back to the written word. Notice he points them to a person. He points them to the living word, jesus christ you know you've seen in movies those uh, dramatic moments you know toward the end of a movie it's, it's you're in a courtroom and there's a witness that takes the stand and we don't know exactly how this is all gonna wrap up but we know we're getting near the climax and and we're near the end and we don't know who the culprit is don't know who the murderer maybe is but you know, as this witness who takes the stand, as they're questioned, the pieces start to come together and all of a sudden the witness jumps up and almost leaps out of their chair and points and says, there he is. You know, the place turns into pandemonium and the judge is like banging the gavel, order, order in the court. Right? And that we've, we're familiar with scenes like that. Now this is kind of like that, only Jesus isn't guilty of any crimes. John is taking the witness stand and he's jumping up And he's pointing and saying, the Messiah is Jesus. It's not me. I came to tell you all it's that guy, the one you crucified. That's the one. He is the promised one that every Old Testament prophet longed to see. That's the one who the entire law in Old Testament foretold. Right, Going all the way back to Genesis 3. And John the Baptist saying he's right there, the person of Jesus. So John is saying Jesus is so much more than a prophet. He's saying he's the point of history. He's the point of history. The whole Old Testament, indeed all of human history, was preparing us and culminating in the coming of Jesus Christ, which is where we're about to go in just a moment. And notice again what John said. He said, I am not the light. What is he doing? He's only pointing to the light. I wonder this morning, What light you might be looking to. I wonder this morning what light you might be looking to. You know, our world uh, talks a lot about enlightenment. And I recognize it doesn't always use that term. It's kind of a dirty word these days in some academic circles. Uh, It doesn't always use the term. But it's always trying to point us. Our world is to what? To a better life. To a kind of higher life. To a more transcendent life. An enlightened kind of life. And the message it sends is that the light you desperately need is actually within you. You possess it. You just have to harness it. You have to capture that inner light and and let it loose with all of its potential. That's the message the world sends us. And maybe, you know, we run with that for time. But, you know, live long enough thinking you're the light and the world will just come crashing down. It won't last. Because it's not true. The Bible says the light you need is not within you. It's outside of you. That light can only be found in Jesus Christ, in his words, and in his life, not ours. The truly enlightened life can only be found in Jesus because he is much more than a prophet. We're seeing here he is the very point of history. Which brings us, fourthly, to the truth that Jesus is more than a good man. Fourthly, Jesus is more than a good man. This is verses nine to 11 and verse 14. Now recognize that's different from being simply a religious teacher. So you may know the name David Kresh or Jim Jones. that they were both religious teachers, but that did not make them good men. They were deeply evil men. Religious teachers can be evil and immoral men. men. We sadly know that. Now, many say Jesus wasn't one of those sort of bad teachers. You know, he's the good kind, many people say, of religious teacher. And just an observation, usually the people who say that are the people who have read Jesus the least. Because when you read the Gospels and you hear the words of Jesus from his own mouth, Right, when you listen to Jesus' assessment of us and the coming judgment of God against us, right, the less he sounds like a good teacher in the way you and I define good. Which maybe explains why right it was no different for Jesus' day. Because John says he was coming into the world, verse 9. Yet what the world didn't know him, verse 10. In fact, even his own people, the Jews, we read verse 11, what? They rejected him. And it's interesting, for right there, John says it was Jesus who came into the world. You know, we often talk about people seeking after God, or we talk about, you know, the quest for God, you know, Time or Newsweek will always have some story at some point in the year, the quest for God. As if man is constantly on the lookout for God, right? Just longing, looking out. across the oceans or the heavens or what, just desperately trying to grasp a glimpse of God. But that's not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is we're in darkness. And darkness, what? It hates the light. We're not looking for God. None of us are. We're naturally running from God. In our sin, we're all hiding from God. No, God had to what? Come to us. God had to seek us. God himself had to take the initiative with us christianity has never been about us taking the initiative and saying hey let's get together and let's send out a search party to find god it's never how it's worked no it's again god taking the initiative we don't move toward him he moves toward us christianity is about how god take that initiative to come to us to move toward us which is remarkable Because the world in John is regularly what? In opposition to God. The world has rejected God. It's gone against in rebellion against its maker. So when we read in John 3.16, those verses so familiar to us, God so loved the world. That's not an endorsement of the world. It's not like how lovely was the world. No, he loved this rebellious world because God himself was lovely and sent his son into it. It's saying nothing good about us. It's saying everything about the character of God. And how did he come toward us? Verse 14, we read, and the word became flesh. Now some say that you know Jesus was born and he was a person like you and me and then God kind of came into him in a, in a special way and came into his life. And in that sense, Jesus is the son of God. Others have said Jesus only appeared as a man, but he really wasn't flesh and blood at all like us. He only appeared to be like us. That's called docetism, if you care about that kind of thing. But that's, notice, John says none of that. John says, when the word became flesh, God became man. That's the astounding thing he says. When the word became flesh, God became man. It's the wonder of the incarnation, right? Literally, incarnation is really God fleshed, And he, we read, verse 14, dwelt among us. To dwell there, it's capturing the image regularly used in the Exodus of, of the pitching of the tent, the pitching of the tent of the tabernacle. It recalls how in Exodus, the tent of the tabernacle was where God literally met with man and where he dwelled with men. But notice John says that God no longer meets with us in a temple. Right? Christians understood with the destruction of the temple in AD 70, that was sort of God's point of saying, there is no more temple because the temple has already come. The temple is in Jesus Christ. God meets with us, not in a temple, but in the person of Jesus Christ. And just as at the completion of the temple, if you remember in Exodus 40, when the temple's completed, we read the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. He's referred to that as Shekinah glory. Well, what do we find? When God tabernacled with us in Jesus Christ, John says, we have what? Seen his glory 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 is the only son from the father verse 14 right that shekinah glory now rests uniquely on jesus friends that's why we don't need a temple to worship it's why we don't need fancy buildings though i love our building it's why we don't need to make pilgrimages to jerusalem but i too am sad the israel trip got canceled right i've never been to israel that would have been fun but we don't finally need to go there to be made right with god God doesn't meet us in a holy place. He meets us in a holy person, right? The person of Christ. And so I don't know what you think about God this morning. I don't know what notions you have about him. But I do want you to notice how personal the God of the Bible is. He is not distant. He is not detached He is not merely some logical concept like the word was in in much of Greco-Roman thought. No, he was was not impersonal or coldly rational. In Jesus Christ, God became personal. He became loving. He became someone we could talk to, someone who lived among us, someone who suffered like us. It was actually this verse that was so instructive in Augustine's own conversion. Because he came to see, no, the God of the Bible is a, a personal God that we can know. We can be in relationship with. You want to encounter God this morning? You want to meet with God? You want to know God? You can meet him and know him in the person of Christ. Read his words. Listen to his voice. You can meet him just like those in the first century met him. And that is true if you are a non-Christian. And that is also true if you are a Christian. We can continue to meet with this God. We can learn from him, be encouraged by him, even be transformed by him all through the written word, which like Jesus is what living and active, bringing light and life to men. Jesus is so much more simply a good man. He is the very glory of God. Which brings us to our fifth and final truth. Jesus is more than a way. He's the way. Fifth, Jesus is more than a way, he's the way. And this is really verses 12 and 13. So here we've come to the the center of the chiasm, right? We've really come, I would argue, to the heart of the passage and much of what John is going to be expounding throughout the rest of his gospel. Now, the problem John's laid out is that while Jesus is fully God and full of God's glory and manifesting that glory to all people, yet in darkness and rebellion and sin, continue to reject him. And we know they didn't just reject him, they killed him. And then we come to that wonderful biblical word. I know last week Nick in the equipping hour was talking about four, and in the Bible four is a grand conjunction. But you know one that's equally grand in the Bible is that word but. Verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That right there is the heart of John's hope. That right there is really the outline, you could say, for the whole book. So the prologue, verses 1, 1 to 18, right? it culminates, I think, there in verse 12. And really, the, all of chapters 1 to 12, everything that follows in 119 all the way through chapter 12, could basically trace out verse 11. His own did not receive him. That's basically 119 through 12. And then you can look at chapters 13 to 20 as yet, verse 12, to all who did receive him. That's pretty much 13 to 20, and then you get the epilogue. So if that helps you, just again, I think John's framing out the book. But friend, what does it mean to receive Jesus? You know, it's not like Jesus is some celestial football that God, like, tossed from the heavens and we have to run down and catch or anything. John says to receive Jesus is what? It is equivalent to believing in his name. There again, that word central to John's gospel, belief. But belief in what? He says belief in his name. Now, one's name in the Bible is not simply a label, it's not something trendy that we tend to like and follow. So I, I read about the most popular baby names in 2023. And for girls, it was Olivia. And for boys, it was Noah. Which honestly, I found a little, I was surprised. Wasn't expecting those two. Olivia and Noah. Followed by second most common girl name, Emma. Second most common boy name, get ready for this, Griffiths, Liam. So apparently the McCollums and the Lassies and the Griffiths are all trendsetters. They were well ahead of the pack, which is exactly, when I look at Mike Griffiths, I'm always thinking, yeah, trendsetter, right there. <laughs> that guy sets cultural trends. But the point John's making is that one's name in the Bible reflects the totality. I've got to bring you guys back. Bring the totality. We're all visioning Mike with the stories in the Amazon. It's One's name in the Bible reflects the totality of a person. And notice the promise for the one who believes in Jesus. And the totality of who he is and what he claimed about himself, he, Jesus does, gives the right to become children of God. And now right there you may be like, wait, Brad, stop. I thought everyone was a child of God. Well, in the sense that God is our creator, yes. But in the sense that we know God as Savior, no. Notice John assumes none of us are naturally children of God. But the glorious hope of the gospel that he's laying out is that anyone can become a child of God by believing in this Jesus, by receiving this Jesus. And what does that look like? Well, it's not just to acknowledge him. It's not just to, you know, throw Jesus a little head nod and show up at church twice a year. That's not receiving Jesus. It's not just to accept him in the sense that you give some kind of intellectual assent to certain truths. Belief, receiving Jesus, is to entrust all of your life to him. And not just, again, not some of him, but all of him, the totality of his person. It's to believe this Jesus came to earth as God. He lived the perfect life under the law of God, the Mosaic law that you and I never lived. He lived that perfect life. He was the perfect second Adam, you could say. And then he died on a cross, the death we deserve to die in our sins. And then he was raised three days later to the very glory of God, to the right hand of God, such that everyone who believes in this Jesus Repents of their sin and places their faith in Him, they can be saved. They can know eternal life, have everlasting life. And to receive Jesus is not just to believe this, John says, it's to give our entire life over to it, to entrust ourselves to Him, to hold nothing back. Everything we have is His. All of our life live for Him. That's what He's after. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a child of God. Friend, I wonder if that describes you. Are you a child of God? Well, how exactly does that happen? You know, if in our physical birth, we're simply born. How did we receive life? We just receive life from our parents. In other words, plainly speaking, none of us are self-generating. I think we know that. None of us are self-generating. I assume just about every mother in the room wishes We were self generating, right? Labor's tough, labor's hard. Sadly, it's not the reality. And in the same way that we must be born physically, so we must be born spiritually. We must be born again. That's already the idea John's introducing that, of course, he's going to pick up where in John 3. But notice how that doesn't happen. John's really clear. Hey, don't be confused. We're not born again through family bloodline. We're born not of blood, John says in verse 13. In other words, it's not our ethnic or family bloodline that saves us. And this is what the Jews took great pride in. John's going to go after him in John 8. But that's not what saves us. Which is just a good reminder to any who are young in the room. None of us are saved because our parents are Christians. We're not saved because we go to a Christian school. We're not saved because we can quote a bunch of Bible verses. We're not saved because we have this great Christian heritage. We're not saved because we love Christmas. None of those things in and of themselves save us, right? The Jews had just about all of that, minus the Christmas part, and they still rejected Jesus. But it's also not our sincerity or passion alone that saves us. So will of the fret of the flesh, that expression will of the flesh, it's really capturing the desire a couple has to conceive and have a child. And yet we know that sincerity and passion in and of themselves are not enough to conceive, nor is it simply our efforts that save us, so, the will of man is sort of getting to that idea, commentators think. It's speaking to sort of our work, our human efforts, and yet no amount of human effort brings a person to saving faith. And it it's not our efforts that save us. So, how are we born again? Well, we must be born of God, right? God must give us life, He must do it. Which means, as parents, we can never assume. Our kids are Christians because they've grown up in our homes or simply because they've heard good teaching. We can't give them the new birth. We can't coerce them into the new birth. We shouldn't be pressuring them into the new birth. God alone has to give it. It's a gift. So don't presume upon it. But what? Pray for it. Plead for it. It is God's grace and gift to give. You know, I noted at the opening how in so many ways, Oprah catches and really captures the religion of our age, where belief has what? It has no clear object, draws no hard lines, wears no distinct labels, where, again, it's about positivity, inclusivity, empathy, right, fuzzy theological boundaries, all of that. But I hope you have seen that John presents something radically different than that. It matters what you believe, John says, not simply that you believe, namely that you believe Jesus is not merely a man, but he's God, that you believe that Jesus is more than a religious teacher. He is the creator and savior, that he's more than a prophet. He's the promised one. The the very point of history culminates in this Jesus He's more than a good man. He is, in fact, the very glory of God, and he's more than a way to the Father. He is the way, and it's only by believing in his name that any get the right to be called children of God. The wonderful news is that God became man so that children of men might believe and become children of God. So, friend, what do you believe this morning? Let's pray.